Evening. It's good to be able to uh, sing together as as a church family. Uh, Tonight we are going back into our our sermon series in James, which is titled Faith That Works. Uh, So we're thinking about uh, James's heart uh, for the churches in his day. Um, His longing is that they would wholeheartedly live in a lost world um, in his power and for God's glory. Uh, And so throughout this letter, James is exhorting them sometimes in a very direct way. When you look at James, he's pretty straight to the point at times. Um, but his call for them, in light of, of God uh, leading him in what he says, is that they would be men and women who live out the Christian life with integrity. They would be men and women who shine Jesus uh, to a, a context where folk were lost and disconnected from uh, all that God was uh, for him. Um, all of which is a, a key reason why we've named this series uh, Faith That Works. Uh, the whole premise for this title is that it's a reflection of what we find uh, within this book. So we're not just coming up with a title with no relation to what we see. Um, no, if you have genuine faith, if you have genuine faith, then you'll have a faith that works. And works in the sense of who you are is what you'll do. Uh, works in the sense that the external is an authentic mirror of the internal and works in a sense that the spiritual fruit is a clear indication of the spiritual root. Uh, and not just works in that sense, but also works in a sense that your faith, if it is genuine, if your faith really is genuine, then it will be an effective faith. Um, that is, it will strive to, to work hard for Jesus. Uh, it really will be effective for God's glory and for the mission of the church. So, um, this is all helpful for us, just as we think about this idea of faith and having a genuine faith, particularly as from time to time in our lives, sometimes we just find ourselves asking a question, am I saved? Am I genuinely saved? Um, and one of the clearest indications of that is what we see in our own life. Um, so last year we spent our time focusing on James chapter 1. Uh, apart from our Easter series, which will begin in a few weeks' time, we're going to look at James right up until the end of June. Uh, and then we've got Holiday Club uh, and all the excitement around that. Uh, and from there, we'll start a new summer sermon series uh, in July. So hopefully that gives you an idea of where we're going in the next four or five months. Uh, in chapter two, James moves from underlining the importance of hearing the word of God and doing the word of God to then providing different examples of what this looks like. And the title for this message tonight is An Impartial Faith. An Impartial Faith. And we've named the message an impartial faith, because this is what James is warning us about in these verses we're going to focus on tonight. So to understand this in more detail, let's begin by digging into the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, let's have a look at James 2 and verses 1 to 13. I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. So James begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 with these words, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favour on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God 
that he has promised to those who love him. Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's just take a moment to pray as we think about this passage. So, Father, we, we thank you that, as we've just sang, that you are good. And Lord, we just want to dwell in your incredible love uh, towards us. The fact that you loved us so much that you were willing to give your one and only son to die on our behalf. We just want to say thank you for that amazing gift. And we thank you that this is one of the most impartial acts that we have ever seen. Or this was the most impartial act that you loved the world. And Lord, we want to reflect who you are, but we also want to reflect what your word says. And we pray for that specifically as we take time to understand what your passage says here. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to realize it is impossible for us to apply it without your strength and power. So would you bless us? Would you be glorified in and through us? May we be equipped. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've shared this story before, so apologies if you have heard this already, but <clears throat> just when I started as a, a full-time uh, pastor, uh, I was invited to this special event for Christian leaders. Uh, this was a dinner in one of Glasgow's top hotels. It was for Christian leaders in the church, uh, Christian leaders in the public and private sectors. And to be honest, I felt a bit out of my depth. Um, I was definitely the youngest there. Uh, the only one whose hair wasn't either missing or grey. Um, I walked in, partly and stupidly thinking to myself that I was amongst the cream of the Christian crop. Um, and to top it off, I was walking in with someone who had connections with the person who organised the event. And most importantly, it meant that we had access to the VIP lounge at this event, uh, an event for Christian leaders. So there was a VIP section. So we had all these Christian leaders gathered together, but then within that group of leaders, we, we had a very important people group of Christian leaders. So here's me standing there with this overwhelming sense of imposter syndrome. Um, I was amongst reverends and very reverends and archbishops and even a NASA astronaut struggling to drink fresh orange juice out of a champagne glass, thinking to myself, I do not belong here. Uh, and it was only days later that I realized that none of us really added up. And the fact that we had a VIP lounge at a Christian event made no biblical sense uh, whatsoever. Because it was not like God was looking upon this event on this, in this hotel and thinking to himself, here's all my children, but here's my very important children in this room. And they're very important because they have VIP on the front of the door. Now, you might hear all of that and think that this was pretty ridiculous of Christian leaders, as I thought it was ridiculous eventually, to come together as a Christian event, the whole aim of the event geared towards sharing the gospel to a lost world, 
And the sin of favoritism was front and center of this event. But in truth, we all do this. We are all guilty of favoritism. We, we may not do it as explicit as that, but no question, some of us do it worse than others. And no question, we are all guilty of the sin of impartiality or partiality rather. And we're so often guilty of, of something different. What can so easily be uh, the subtle sin of favoritism. It may not be obvious, but it's subtle. And sometimes we can even deceive ourselves into thinking that we're not doing anything wrong. So what does our favoritism actually look like? Well, in truth and in our flesh, we're drawn to people who have wealth. Uh, we're drawn to people who are attractive, whatever form that may take. And we're drawn to people who carry power, who have influence. The other way we show favoritism is with relationships. Um, we just naturally get on with some people more than others. That's just a fact. And we would much rather spend time and honor those who fill our bucket rather than those who empty our bucket. Um, Francis Chan, a number of years ago, did this really interesting experiment in his church. He's a pastor in a church in California. And he put a hidden camera in the foyer. I'm not going to do this, don't worry, guys. But he put a hidden camera in the foyer of the church just before the service started. He got one of the young people in the church uh, to stand beside him in the foyer as people started to walk into the church. And he wanted to see the ratio of how many people engaged with him compared to how many people engaged with this young person. And most importantly, he wanted to see how many people walked by this young person in order to speak to him. So he did the experiment, and the following week, he preached on the dangers of favoritism, and he showed the, the video from the previous week, and there was no question in anyone's mind, having watched the video, the overwhelming majority of people either walked by or ignored this young person and went straight to pastor, author, Christian celebrity, Francis Chan. Now, what was the purpose of him doing that? Just as a side note, I've watched this video myself. He did it in love in terms of explaining what he was doing. The church took it really well. There was a lot of grace and laughter around the whole process. The purpose was not to name and shame people publicly, catching them out in some kind of Christian entrapment. That was not what was going on. Instead, the purpose of that experiment, Chan's heart was to highlight just how subtle the natural sin of favoritism can be. And it was subtle and natural for them, and it's subtle and natural for each one of us. So we so often show favoritism, and half the time we don't even know that we're doing it. Before the service, after the service, midweek, we often go to the people we go to because we get something from them. So we, we're drawn to those who we're drawn towards because we benefit in some way by being with them. All of which highlights tonight that none of us naturally default into impartiality. Our relationships carry biases in our hearts. There's a part of us in our flesh that shows favoritism to the wealthy, to the attractive, to people of power and influence, to the people who fill our bucket. And why is this? Well, often we want their glory to rub off on us in some way. So let's be clear tonight. If you and I want to live out the command that James gives here in verse 1, and it's just so clear for us, verse 1 straight away, James says, do not show favoritism. Do not show favoritism as you hold to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he connects the two. So don't show favoritism because you have faith 
in Christ. In other words, the reason why you shouldn't show favoritism is because you are connected to Jesus. So he says that, and we have to recognize tonight, we can only ever do that in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the strength that God provides us with. It has to be a supernatural work of God that has to be entirely different to what it is we see in our world. Because our world is their masters at showing favoritism every single day. And it's so easy for us just to flow with culture and just go along with what they do. But in order for us to go against that cultural tide, we have to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. What we've been doing tonight is to think about this broad category of favoritism and all the various forms it can so easily take. But in reality, James doesn't do that in this passage. He hones in and he focuses on one particular type of favoritism. One that's already been mentioned, one that is so prevalent in our world and even in the church. We find this type of favoritism in verses 2 to 4 through this example. James writes, starting in verse 2, For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here in the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James here presents us with this hypothetical situation, but it's a hypothetical scenario that in reality is rooted in fact because we see this all the time. This example that James presents took many different forms in James's day. And today, yes, absolutely, it takes many different forms in our culture, including the two examples I've already given. Here we have two individuals who walk into a gathering amongst believers. And although James is not explicitly clear about this, the most likely scenario is that this is a church gathering like what we have tonight. The Lord's people are meeting on the Lord's Day for worship. One person comes in, he's wearing a gold ring, designer clothes. The other person has no rings as far as we're aware and he's wearing filthy clothes. And James says, when these individuals arrive and you show honour to the rich at the expense of the poor, what you're doing, what are you doing? You're giving the rich person the VIP treatment. You're calling the poor person to be subjugated under you as some kind of submissive servant. In effect, you've made judgment in your own heart as to who has more value than someone else. The word favoritism in scripture is a descriptive word for showing partiality and it literally means this, to receive someone according to their face. It's quite an interesting definition. To receive someone according to their face. In other words, according to their external appearance, you judge someone and yet we worship the one who does not do that. God's the opposite of that kind of attitude. First Samuel 16, verse 7. We read this. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible. But the Lord sees the heart. God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the external. He looks at the heart. NIV says this of the same verse. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. You know, it'd be, it would be such a blessing for all of us not to look externally, but to look internally. And I know we're not God. We don't know what's going on in people's hearts. 
But over time, through relationship, we have an idea of what's going on inside a person. And this is what James moves towards in the remainder of a passage. He gives three reasons for why it is we should not receive people according to their face. And in giving these reasons, we see God's heart for our own heart, that we would live lives that are geared and ordered in the right way, in a manner that glorifies his name, as we engage with our people day to day, whoever they may be, whatever social status they may carry. So let's have a look together at the first reason that James gives for why we should not show favoritism. Reason number one, we shouldn't show favoritism because the poor are chosen. The poor are chosen. Verse five. Let's have a look at verse five again. James writes, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and theirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? So he again uses that phrase, my dear brothers and sisters. And you find this throughout the book of James constantly, my dear brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters. And he does that because he has a lot of difficult things to say to these, these early believers. He recognizes he has difficult truth. And so he wants them to understand that yes, this truth is difficult, but also yes, he is saying this in love and care and pastoral concern for their lives. James wants him to see here, you cannot do that. You cannot show favoritism towards the rich at the expense of the poor because God does not do that. In fact, quite the opposite. James says so clearly here, God chose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. So do not do that. Do not show favoritism because God has chosen the poor. God does this. He chooses the poor because this is God's heart for the impoverished all around us. Now, to get to what James is meaning here, we need to come to terms with what it is that James means by poor. What does James mean by this word poor? So it's true that this term means a lack of material possessions and finances, but it also means an inner attitude of humility and contrition. And when you examine both the Old Testament definitions and the New Testament definitions of that word poor, they often mean both. And, and what can happen when it comes to the extremities of biblical interpretation is that the left will only hold to this conviction that the term poor exclusively means a lack of money and resources. Often the kind of left-leaning theologians will say it only means this, only means a lack of money and resources. And the right so often focus on this understanding of this term as this inward mentality and attitude of humility, believing that poor should be emphasized most in relation to a humble heart. And the truth of the matter is it's both. It's both. There's no way, I mean, there's, there's absolutely no way we can look at this passage and take these words of James and the example he gives in verses two to four and say this is solely a proud person and a humble person walking into this gathering. I mean, it's just impossible to interpret it like that. But equally, there's no way we can also say that this is solely about money, how much these individuals have, because, because who they are and the condition of their hearts is undoubtedly connected to how much money and possessions they have, meaning it's both. It's inward and it's also outward. And it's this lethal cocktail of what they have, how they appear, what position they have alongside their inner attitude, what position they think they have, that then causes other people 
watching these individuals to show favoritism to one at the expense of the other. Let me just invite you to reflect as we think about this, this harsh reality of sinful favoritism. Let's just have a moment to reflect on the attitude of Mary and her words of praise in Luke 1 and verses 50 to 53. Mary declares and rejoices in our Lord and she says this, Luke 1, 50 to 53, and it'll be up on the screen for us. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. <clears throat> he has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So we see both here. We see that Mary highlights that God shows favor towards the poor. The poor meaning the materially poor, but also the internally poor as well, humble in heart. And God often is in opposition to the rich. And again, material riches, but also the fact that in light of their riches, they're proud in their hearts. So understand tonight, God chooses the poor. And in his sovereignty, the poor are often characterized by lives of humility, external and internal. And as we understand from these words of Mary here and later on in James 4, 6, the Lord gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. Now, in light of all of this, a couple of, of objections you might have could be these. Number one, does this mean that all poor people are chosen by God? Does it mean that all poor people are chosen by God? A second objection, which is closely connected to the first, is this. Is God choosing the poor an example of reverse discrimination? In other words, is this discrimination from God on the other side towards the poor instead of the rich? And I think the answer to both of these questions is no. No to the first question, because James conditions those in their poverty as chosen by God, not because they do in fact love God. So it's not because they're poor. James shows love, uh, sorry, God shows love and favor towards the poor because verse five, James says, the poor who love him, the poor who love him. So it's not poor people per se who have been chosen by God. It's poor people who love God that are chosen. That's so important for us tonight. And without question, scripture is clear. You're more likely to have this love relationship with God if you're poor than if you're rich. And I think the answer is no to the second question because the reality is that the poor need God more than the rich need God. And this is really important for us to understand. Of course, both the poor and the rich need God both equally in one regard. But the poor are more aware of our need for God day to day. And when I was coaching football in South America, we had this, this broad mix of different kids with different abilities. And we had some really talented players, uh, some of whom, because they were so good, they had a bit of an ego. And we also had some really honest players, just guys who didn't really have much ability, but they played for a love of the game. Now, many of the good players, they didn't need coached. And even if you tried to coach them, they would push back because they thought they were amazing. Um, but the players that didn't have much ability, they, they were the ones that you were able to invest in, to focus on. And they were the ones 
who are most receptive to what it is you have to say to them. And so as with God and the rich and the poor, it's not reverse discrimination. It's the reality of life. It's through the poor that God is most glorified because they listen the most because they understand that they need God the most. Have a look at what one commentator, Solomon Andrea, said about this passage. He says this, God is on the side of the poor, not because they are poor, but, but because they are responsive to him and are near the kingdom. Let me say that again. God is on the side of the poor, not because they are poor, but because they are responsive to him and are near the kingdom. And I would add to that, they are responsive to him because God has opened their hearts to be responsive to him. Their sovereignty, there's responsibility, all happening at the same time. And we do not understand how it all works out, but we know that God is in control. Amen. So this brings us on to the second reason. Reason number two, why we shouldn't so show favoritism. The rich are sinful, verses 6 to 7. Have a look at what we read. James says in verse 6, speaking to this early church, yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Now to understand what James is getting at here, we need to understand that he's speaking to a group of churches in one of the first chapters in the history of Christianity and they were predominantly poor. So he's interestingly saying here, you as individuals who are majority poor, do not show favoritism to those who are rich because they are hurting the poor. In other words, you dishonor the poor by honoring those who dishonor the poor. And for James, this made no sense whatsoever. Why would you honor those who are dishonoring your people group? The churches in James's day consisted of those who are poor. And it's primarily the rich then dragged them into court. In James's day, people were so poor, they could barely function in life. They found it so difficult to survive. There was plenty of money lenders. Extortion was rife. If you hadn't paid what you owed, the punishment was instant arrest. You were sent straight to court. So James wants his readers to understand, you cannot honor these rich people at the expense of all the poor around you. Their lives are marked by sin and injustice. To honor them is to honor what they do. This is what James is getting at when he speaks about individuals who honor the rich. And again, it's so important for us to remind ourselves James is not condemning the rich because of their wealth and riches. He's condemning the rich because in their riches, they are choosing to live sinful and unjust lives at the expense of those who need, uh, at the expense of those who are most in need. And the issue is not injustice to the poor. It's not just that the rich sin against the poor all around them. As James clearly states of the rich in verse 7, they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you. So yes, they're, they're showing injustice towards the poor, but they're also blaspheming the good name that was invoked over you. Now, there are different interpretations as to what James, James means here by the good name, but the clearest understanding of his words is that James here is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So the good name that was invoked over you, James here wants, wants his reader to understand He's speaking about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is over these believers. And when James says blaspheme here in verse 7, what he's saying is that the rich are individuals who have effectively violate, 
violate the power and majesty of God in our lives. So when Christians side with the rich at the expense of the poor, they are siding with those who violate the power and majesty of God. In effect, they are welcoming blasphemers. James wants us to understand here, the rich are sinful. Why are you elevating them so highly? They violate the poor and they also violate God himself. What are you thinking? What's going through your head as you seek to honor these rich people? And just before we label Christians in James's day as different from each one of us, as having an issue that is no longer an issue for us today, are we not the same? Are we not the same? Do we not elevate the rich and at the same time neglect and undermine the poor from time to time? Have a look at what Blomberg and Camel say on these verses in James as they reflect on modern, on modern society. So they have a look at what James says here and connect it to what they see in society. They say this and it'll be up on the screen for us. Today, many Christians do not even take holidays or Sabbaths from making as much money as they can, nor do they dare to challenge their employers about their company's unjust treatment of overseas workers false advertising, or less than full and accurate financial disclosure. <clears throat> Instead, like those whom James rebukes, we kowtow to the rich, especially when they, when they might give to our Christian causes, and we line their pockets by buying their goods, even when they do us no good. If that's true, and that is us, then the question I want to ask tonight is this, where do we start? If this is true, and we side with the rich at the expense of the poor in Scotland in 2023, where do we start? Because we're almost kind of immersed in this kind of culture. How are we to discern biblically and correctly to the injustices that we see and the favoritism that we can so often carry within our hearts? And perhaps our prayer tonight could be this, God, show me where it is that I'm shown favoritism. What evidence in my life is there of favoritism. And God, let me be someone who is willing to listen and to respond in obedience to what it is that you have shown me. So take a moment to ask God, God, show me the favoritism in my heart and allow me to be someone who is willing to change, to move away from that, that sin of favoritism and towards an impartial life. All of what I'm saying tonight highlights the final point I want to make as we continue to dig into this passage. Uh, reason three, we do not show favoritism because we ourselves are sinful when we do that. <laughs> Verses 8 through to 13. Very simply, favoritism is sin. This is what James says. Have a look again at what James writes in verses 8 to 13. And let's begin by focusing on the first verse. Verse 8. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James begins here by outlining the opposite of showing favoritism. And the opposite of showing favoritism is loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. The reality is you cannot neglect and reject a poor person if you're treating that person as you would treat yourself. Then verse 9, James writes, If, however, you show favoritism, in other words, if you do not love your neighbor, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So we can't get any more clearer than that tonight, Denison Baptist Church. Favoritism is sin. 
favoritism is sin. And then verses 10 to 11, James states, For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. So to sin in one aspect of a law is to sin in every single area of a law. So it's not that we can think to ourselves, well, I've, I've not sinned in all these areas. Yes, I've maybe messed up in this area, but that's okay because all these other areas are fine. No, if we sin in one area, we've sinned in all areas. We've broken the entire law. Imagine you were walking through George Square on a warm summer's day, and sorry if you've heard this analogy twice now, but you've, you've got the shades on, ice cream in hand, uh, one of Glasgow's notorious pigeons flies over your head, and does a poo on your ice cream. Now in that moment, you're not going to look at the ice cream and see where the poo is on your ice cream and say, I'll just lick around it, it'll be fine. No, to contaminate one part of the ice cream is to, is to contaminate the entire ice cream. And brothers and sisters, to break one part of the law is to break the entire law. Thanks for bearing with me with that analogy. <laughs> so... It's not just that we're breaking a commandment of God either. So it's not just like we're, we're looking at God's law and saying, well, I'm not obeying that piece of information. James wants us to understand that we're an act of rebellion against a person, against God himself. So he uses a phrase in verse 11, for he who said. So it's not just information. We're rejecting the one who created this law. And this is to highlight, this is way more than rule keeping. This is about relationship with a holy God. The one who we will have to give an account to, verse 12. The one who will judge all of us who are in Christ and all of us who are not in Christ, again, verse 12. And the one who, if we are in Christ, will ultimately show his mercy, verse 13. So I want us to understand tonight, it's very easy just to focus on this sin of favoritism and to think oh, it's just a subtle sin, it's just a small sin. You know, God, God's got it covered, but I want us to see it in light of the entire law and the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God. When we show favoritism, we're rebelling against the one who loves us, who lived for us, who died for us, and who rose again, and who has given us his Holy Spirit, and who one day we will have to give an account for. So tonight, I hope we see that danger in that context. So we know the dangers we know the dangers of showing favoritism, hopefully, tonight. Um, I would just invite you now, using this passage as a backdrop, how can we be proactive in being impartial? How can we live out an impartial faith? Because it's one thing not to do this. It's another thing to live a life of impartiality. And there's three questions I want us just to reflect on as we leave this place tonight. And as we think about how it is we can show impartiality and love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves first question is this are you sensitive to how the spirit is leading you in your relationships with both the church family here and people outside the church so as you think about all the different relationships that you have are these relationships governed by your flesh or are they governed by your spirit by god's spirit is god leading you and who it is you should connect with and spend time with. Not because they fill your bucket. And yes, it is important we have friends who fill our bucket. Absolutely, I'm not saying that's wrong. But is that all we have? Do we have this healthy balance 
of being strengthened and encouraged by friends, but also being able to minister and help others. So are you sensitive to the Spirit in all of your relationships, inside the church and outside the church? Number two, how often do you find yourself embracing, blessing, and welcoming people who the world would regard as unlovable? How often do you find yourself embracing, blessing, and welcoming people who the world would regard as unlovable? And I think there's definitely people in our lives who we can think of who fit into this category. How are you getting on with that? How are you loving them, embracing them, blessing them? And finally, are you aware of the joy, the joy that can be had from a life that's marked by an impartial faith? There's no doubt about it. James is calling us to something that's quite difficult and it will be costly for our lives. It will be sacrificial. Something within us will need to die. But there's something incredible that takes place when we choose to live a sacrificial faith. When we move in that direction, we get to experience God's joy and God's blessing. God will look upon our lives and he will be pleased with the obedient steps that we're taking. So, Tonight, in light of these questions, we just want to take a moment uh, to respond. Um, And we do not take for granted the fact that we meet together as a church family, morning and evening, and we have the opportunity to be able to share, to encourage, to have tea and coffee, to have fellowship. And the invitation is there tonight for anyone who's maybe just finding it hard. Perhaps you look at your life and you just feel overwhelmed. And I know Often we do this as a church family. We just take a moment to identify the struggles, the challenges of our lives as a means from which we can then go to others within this space tonight and ask for prayer. And again, if that's you tonight, I would invite you to have the courage to speak with myself or someone you know who loves the Lord. And we would count it a privilege just to pray with you in this time. Because this is more than just having a tea or a coffee and having fellowship. It's about connecting with God by connecting with one another. Tonight we also recognise that um, perhaps in our lives we have illness, we have pain, we have in our lives been asking for healing and again this is a space where we can do that. We can, we can seek the Lord and ask in Jesus' name that he would bring about healing within your life, however that's physical, emotional, mental. We believe that God can and God does heal according to his sovereign will. So if that's you, then do speak with us. And as we respond, we just want to to be open to to what it is that we're singing tonight. So as we sing, let's not just sing because we we do that. We do that on a Sunday as we gather together. But let's honestly and wholeheartedly consider the words that we sing as an act of worship to God. So these are ways in which we can respond. Let's maximize the time that God's given us so that we might be changed, so that we might live in obedient faith to Christ so that we might have lives that are marked by impartiality for the glory of his name. Let's pray together as we respond in these ways. So Father, we we give you thanks that that we can take this time to dig into your word and we pray. We know that your your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray that you would convict us. We pray that you would strengthen us and we pray that we would choose to walk in faith in light of what we have heard tonight. Would you guide us and work in and through us so that as we are satisfied in you, you would be glorified in us. And it's in your precious name, Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Love you guys.